Good afternoon. Welcome to Tuesday afternoon, Greg. <laughs> That's so awesome. It's like a whole day just disappeared. And if you're lucky enough to have a place to spend some quality time with your friends and family, even better. On a pseudo holiday yesterday, I guess it wasn't a holiday for everyone, but for everyone that enjoyed the holiday, it's back at it today. Although I sure noticed a difference in my commute this morning. Mm. No school buses on the road. Didn't have to worry too much about going through school zones. That was nice. Yeah. Because there's a little route that I take that involves St. Matthew's Avenue. Oh, boy. Didn't have to be on the lookout for the photo radar camera guy. I'm pretty respectful of the of the school zones anyway. They just add to the intrigue as to whether or not they'll be present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was different today. The, the drive-in was easy peasy. Lots had, of people on holidays this week, I guess. I had to go get my hair cut today in Transcona. I went to see Joe at Tony's Barbershop on Regent, and normally I try to set aside about anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes because having to fight, even at, even the tail end of rush hour, because usually my appointments are around 9.30, 9.40, and sometimes it's not enough. You never know. But today I got there, I think, 22 minutes, and I thought, ah, summer traffic. <laughs> it's always nice because it's always a, I'm always in a rush to get there. It's always a panic. And today I left early, and uh, I had way too much time. So Only 63 days before the kids go back to school, fellow parents. So The countdown is on. <laughs> the countdown is on. Wow. <laughs> but is it Staples that has the uh, most wonderful time of the year music that we normally associate with Christmas with back to school in their advertisements? Oh, really? Yes. yes. Only, only parents can relate to that. <laughs> so <laughs> it'll be okay, folks. We, we can make th- make it through this together. Uh, Canada Day, uh, obviously a very special birthday at 150 for Canada. I got to hand it to the downtown biz and everyone associated with putting together that living flag, I guess the living maple leaf at Portage in Maine Mm -hmm. on Canada Day. What a spectacular event. The way people got involved, the way it was captured has really captivated and it's gone viral right across the planet. So right on. Well done. Bravo. I'm running out of superlatives to to say Yahoo. <laughs> uh, no, the time lapse video that was done from the air was just sensational, and I, I I'm glad that that happened because I wonder, even at ground level, if it is something that, or even if you're there, if you can truly appreciate what is going into it. I'm sure it's cool being a part of it, but when you see it from above, especially in that time lapse sort of environment where you're seeing. Uh, everybody getting f- moved back and forth to make that perfect maple leaf, as you described. And then uh, I love the shot at the end where everyone just scatters. <laughs> I'm surprised uh, like a football game or a ball hockey game or something didn't break out in the meantime when everyone had access to, to Portage in Maine. But it was spectacular. But of course, there's always this, is it yin and yang, yin and yang? It's this even Steven sort of affair, this thing in Winnipeg. You know, if you're on Twitter during sporting events and and things go sideways for the Jets or Blue Bombers, there's this little saying that will often appear in my Twitter timeline, this is why Winnipeg can't have nice things. Mm. There's that feeling that no matter what we do that's spectacular, on the other side, there are things that are going to be happening that's going to cast a, a, a pall over such events, as happened 
on the evening of Canada Day down at the Forks and several times throughout the downtown. I don't know what to make of this, Brett. Well, yeah, I mean, you, so you had uh, a stabbing around 7.30 near the skate park at the Forks. 18-year-old man is stabbed, was taken to hospital, initially in unstable condition, but later upgraded to stable. So a 19-year-old man is arrested there. And then shortly after midnight, there three people get stabbed. There was a block party uh, in the area of St. Mary Avenue and Smith Street. A restaurant in, in that vicinity was hosting a party. So three people are stabbed there. And then a half hour later... Arlington Street and Flora. Would that be West End or would that... I, I'm not familiar with where Flora is. Yeah, that's is. Uh, Flora's uh, on the other side of the Arlington Street Bridge, so it would be North End. North End, okay. Um, apologies for my ignorance. I couldn't quite remember where Flora Avenue was off the top of my head. So that's obviously... That's further away from the the, the bulk of the, the, the primary Canada Day celebrations that were happening. And then at 1.30, a woman is stabbed in the 500 block of, of Sherbrooke. So you have... Oh, and then, pardon me, and then at the same time, a guy is stabbed. He was actually, he had reported to an emergency room, and that's where police found out about it, and then they learned that it happened. Main Street and Pioneer, so circling right back to the Forks, essentially. That's right. So you have all these events happen in the span of, what, six hours? And, um, I mean, look, it, it that doesn't dissuade me. It wouldn't dissuade me from from going to these things. I don't know what caused any of these particular events, but it is certainly a black eye. Well, especially when you consider, right? We've been told for years that the key to being safe anywhere, and in particular in the downtown, is this concentration of people. Mm-hmm. A higher population, more events, more people at these events, more people on the street. Well, are there ever any more people downtown than there is on Canada Day? You know, I don't know what the official numbers were at the Forks, but you know it's it's between ten and 30,000 people at any one time yeah. down on the Forks, uh, at the Forks, making their way either by foot from the downtown or by bus because parking is very limited down there at the best of times. And at Can- on Canada Day, it's even more limited. And you've got the two big parties between the Forks and Osborne Village and Assiniboine Park, so people using alternate transportation. It just bothers me that here we have what otherwise would be an incredible day to mark Canada's 150. Spectacular fireworks. I wasn't in town, but I saw a video and I saw the pictures. As good of fireworks as we've ever had, according to, to all accounts. And then this kind of black eye. It bothers me. How do we how do we fix this? What, what's what's the causation? I, I have zero answers. Lots of questions, unfortunately, but no answers. Yeah, and they, well, what do you think could be causing? I mean, for example, you have there's, there's this party on St. Mary and Smith. Three people are stabbed. Uh, it was a fight. So I mean, this could be. It could just be that just because there were so many people out yeah, the, the, the thousands of people are out and typically the, like you when you have an event like this where it's a fight fights happen i mean geez i remember when i lived in in transcona 
There was a, at the Canada Inn's bar there, the Transcona Inn, there was a fight every Friday night. I mean, yep, fights happen all the time. Yep, where there's alcohol and young men. <laughs> yes. And women, young women. Yes. Typically those three things combine for yes. a display of testosterone and then fights. And who knows? I'm not saying that's what caused all these. I mean, in, in some situations, uh, young women were Crimes stabbed. of passion, of course, is kind of the uh, underlying theme there, right? Potentially. I don't know, Brett. It just, it seems counterintuitive. Now all of a sudden, uh, well, these things happen because there were so many people and so many things going on. Uh, it's it, it destroys the narrative that we've been preaching for all these years. In order to be safer, we need more people and more activity. And then now all of a sudden we have more activity, all these things going on. Well, there's alcohol involved and so that that's just going to happen. I'd trying to balance that out in my head, and, and it's not working for me. Do you have any thoughts? 204-780-6868 is the number to call. It is the number to text as well, 204-780-6868. Was it just simply a case of the fact that so many people were out and the fact that it was a Saturday as well? I mean, mm. I think the fact that Canada Day fell on a Saturday as opposed to like a Tuesday sort of amplifies that heightened, yeah, it's the weekend, and it's Canada Day, and it's one fifty, and everybody's excited, and they're jacked, and thing, th- things happen. Leave your knife at home. Yeah, 204-780-6868 is the number to call or the number to text. Is the, How big of a black eye is this? Or is it a black eye at all? Do you think this is just sort of a, a random, unfortunate, certainly unfortunate, I don't want to at all sound like we are downplaying the seriousness of seven people getting stabbed in a six-hour span in our great city. But, you know, your thoughts, 204-780-6868, number to call or text, and you can email gmac at cjob.com or brett at cjob.com. Your forecast is coming up next. Should we be surprised that uh, we're getting inundated with uh, text messages? Curious about um, the race of people involved in these incidents? No, I'm not surprised. I'm a little... a little saddened by this, but I mean, it is, uh, we, we don't know. To answer the question, we are getting it from various people. We don't know, according, at least from the, the initial police release. We don't know the, the, the races of the people who were uh, arrested. We don't know the races of the victims involved. And again, this is just going off the initial uh, police release, so I haven't done any digging beyond that. Chris sent a text message. Shame on you guys for making excuses as to why seven people got stabbed on Canada Day. Just admit that Winnipeg has way too much riffraff hanging around downtown and it's not a safe place to be. There is no shock in your voice when talking about this. Seven stabbings surprises no one. There were stabbings at the Forks last year on Canada Day as well. Uh, We're not making excuses. I'm having a hard time. Chris, if you're listening closely... I'll restate my position. We've been told for years that more people makes the downtown safer. Well, we never have more people downtown and at the Forks than we do on Canada Day. And we had several separate incidents in the downtown, three of them. What I would consider in the downtown core and a couple on the periphery. So I certainly was not making any excuses. In fact, I'm baffled as to why these things continue to happen, especially on the busiest day of the year, it could be argued. So, Chris, 
I appreciate your comment, but please get our position on these things accurate, if you wouldn't mind. Paul is at 204-780-6868. Hey, Paul, what do you think about all this? Well, I think Winnipeg's full of head-banging hooligans. That's what I think. I've been to Queen's Day out in Amsterdam. You have 300,000 people in one square. They converge from all different territories, whether they come from Belgium, Germany, you know, in all parts of Amsterdam, and they can all get along and have a great old time. Maybe it's the weed. I don't know what it is, but it's a good time, and nobody gets stabbed, and if you want to sleep in the street, you can sleep in the street, but eventually they all clear out by about 10 p.m., and it's good to go. But Winnipeg downtown at night, not a place for me, not at all. All right, Paul, thank you very much for the feedback. We do appreciate the insight into the Amsterdam. Uh, when were you there, by the way? I was there two years ago. That was a big party. Just, fan- just fantastic. I mean, I-, I can't even describe how amazing it is. The transportation, our rapid transit is the biggest joke on the planet. <laughs> well, it's in the early stages for us. They've probably had a, a little bit of a, a heads a head start. Yeah, they they well, uh, they cherish they, uh, bike freedom there as well, don't they, Paul? Well, yeah. Don't step into a bike lane; you'll get run over by a bike. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, right. Paul. Appreciate it, Paul. Man, thank you so much for the call. We go next to Ian at two zero four seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight. Hello there, Ian. What do you think? I, so I think the narrative the narrative is always and the concern is, is if a random person goes downtown, they could be attacked, they could be robbed, and that's that's the narrative everybody's been worrying about. I will bet you, and certainly when you're talking about that house party, but I'll bet you that every one of these stabbings was people who knew each other. I I I, I have not heard otherwise, but I I would lay dollars on the idea that these are not random assaults, these are not random robberies. These are people who knew each other. So there is, there is that change to the narrative. That, that's, that's where the narrative is safe. You're not randomly going to be attacked, but if you know somebody and you get a fight with them, well, somebody's going to get stabbed. That's where the house party happened for sure. Um, as for Paul refers to events in other countries, nothing ever happens. Eh, I bet you if we go and look, We'll find some police reports. Maybe they just keep it. They don't advertise their crimes as big as we do. So it doesn't bug you, uh, Ian? You know, you rationalize it with this idea that it's a one-on-one uh, confrontation, people that know one another, and therefore it escalates or has the potential to ex- escalate, and the chances of you be r- being randomly stabbed are, 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 are very limited. Well, okay, first, first off, how many were people were at the parks? Oh, tens of thousands. Probably hundreds of thousands. And there was, how many were actually down at the forks? How many of those stabbings? One. Okay. So my chance of being stabbed at the forks is one in a hundred thousand? That's pretty damn good odds. (laughs) Ian, we're losing your phone line here, so uh, uh, we invite you to call back anytime, but we're going to let you go just because your uh, phone line's cracking up. And you know what? I think a lot of people have that take on it, Brett. It's the idea of how likely am am I to be randomly affected by something like this? Yeah, and again, and he, I think there there is certainly likely some truth to what Ian was saying. Just to recap, one of these incidents happened at the near the skate park of the Forks on Saturday evening. An 18 year old man was stabbed. A 19 year old man has been arrested in connection with that. 
at 12.15 a.m., three people were stabbed near St. Mary and Smith for a block party. There was a big fight that happened, and three people were stabbed. Don't know how old these people are, and no one, again, this is according to the initial uh, police release, no one arrested in that at the uh, outset, at least. Half hour later, near Arlington in Florida, or in Flora, pardon me, 21-year-old woman is stabbed. And then at Sherbrooke, 500 block of Sherbrooke, a 22-year-old woman is stabbed. And then there was a male in his 20s who was in a hospital emergency room suffering from a stab wound that happened near Maine and Pioneer. So this is just to answer some questions we're getting from people. Some people are texting and saying, well, what race were... What race was involved in the people either who did the stabbings or who were victims of the stabbings? We don't know. As far as the ages, we just gave you some of them, uh, at least the information that we have at our disposal. Dan says, found one example. Our caller, Paul, uh, talked about Amsterdam, but there are thousands of huge crowd events across the world, and I'm sure at least half of them experience violence. We do have a crime problem, no reason to hide from it. But we are not alone. And I think I have no problem acknowledging we have a crime problem. I would never say otherwise. Uh, But we've been told for years that it would be crowds of people and activity on streets that would limit this criminal activity. And based on what we saw, once again, purely anecdotal, and the conversation I think has been a good one. Uh, How does it make you feel when you see that on the busiest night? Does it counteract that narrative or is it just one of those things was it circumstance timing you mentioned saturday night um that's the sort of thing and the conversation i think people are having about this today and that's why we do what we do at this time of the day i'll just uh, read this text before we pause and go into global news at 1 30 not to trivialize anyone's pain and suffering, but more people downtown only makes it safer if the systems to keep people safe are in place. Our police force is overworked and understaffed. And let's face it, you get a bunch of people together, get their blood up for a liquor-fueled celebration, and no one should be surprised when folks get in bad scenarios. Thank you very much for your feedback on the phone and on text at 204-780-6868. After Global News at 1.30, we're going to talk about Dauphin Country Fest, which was a wild success this past weekend, and then this upcoming weekend, another success in the making, Folk Fest. Global News is next. Mickey Sudo of Las Vegas put away 41 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes to win her fourth straight 4th of July hot dog eating contest at Nathan's Famous in New York. Michelle Lesko down 32 francs to come in second in the women's division and the women's record holder, Sonia the Black Widow Thomas, came in third with a measly 30, a far cry from her peak of 45 dogs and buns. Just a really lame attempt on her part. And by the way, on the men's side, looks like Joey, Jaws, Chess Nut continues his reign as the Chowing champion. He beat his own record to log a 10th win, downing 72 hot dogs in 10 minutes. Ah, Global News Time 133, news on the hour. On the half and when it breaks on 680 CJOB.
So is that two separate competitions? There's the Nathan's eating or hot dog eating contest on Coney Island, and then what, there's a woman, or do they do a men and a woman's? Yeah, they have a women's division and a men's division. So the on the women's side, 41 was the magic number. And then Joey Chestnut, <laughs> the legend himself, yeah. does 72. Yeah, that's right. He took the title back from uh, someone. Hang on a second here. Where did I find that? He regained his title from somebody who goes by the name of the Megatoad, who only had 48 in second what place. A it was a slaughter. No kidding. That's weak. Yeah. How, if you're at a barbecue mm -hmm. and your dad's throwing some hot dogs on the, on the grill or you're camping or something like that, and so, how many hot dogs? How many are you down for? Depends on the wiener. Like, you know, if it's like, a, like you know, those typical ones like uh, used to have when you were growing up. None oh. of these Winnipeg old country sausage fancy uh, schmancy things. Oh. Just a regular. Give me six. In a wonder bun. Give me six, six? of those. Six? Yeah. Sign me up for a half dozen? Yeah. Nice. Well, they're not, there's not much to them, really. But I can't, there's no way I'm, I'm putting 72 of those in my stomach. And they dip them in the water. It's like, oh, it's such a waste. I think but they're basically just swallowing them. I think that's, that's exactly what's happening. Hey, a really big event this past weekend. And this ties into our first half hour of conversation. Keep those text messages coming about how safe do you feel downtown during big events, downtown period, in light of several incidents in the downtown, three of them in particular, uh, one right at the Forks on Canada Day uh, into the wee hours. And, you know, we've been told for years that the key to a safer downtown is more people. Well, arguably one of the busiest days of the year, if not the busiest day of the year in the downtown is Canada Day. And then we have these separate incidents. Is this coincidence? Some people suggesting that, you know, if more people smoked marijuana, less of this would happen. Uh, this could be alcohol-fueled and uh, other shall we say, interesting theories abound. But Country Fest up in Dauphin took place over the weekend. 14,000 people on hand uh, every single day. We want to go up to the parkland area of our province and find out how that went, not only from a safety perspective, but how was the party up at Country Fest. Eric Irwin joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Eric is the president of Dauphin's Country Fest. Eric... A sellout weekend, the first time since 2014. Congratulations on that, sir. Uh, how thrilled was? How thrilled were you to learn that it was a sellout? We were very thrilled, and thank you for calling, gentlemen. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a real challenge for events like ours. Uh, you know, some of the other major country festivals, they have them in racetracks and so on, so that they just add a whole bunch more lawn chairs, and the field gets longer and longer, and people can hardly even see the, the jumbotrons. With us, we have an amphitheater. It's beautiful, but, you know, you can only can only hold so many people. So, so you know, we, we, we can't expand the capacity, the Canadian Dollar really went into the tank. We paid a dollar thirty on average. The the big acts that drive business are charging upwards of a million dollars. So the so the you know we have to sell out in order to be able to make it an economic uh, entity. In the last couple of years, we lost a bit of money. So we were just thrilled to be able to sell out and provide a great show for everybody and uh, build momentum again for next year. Now, we didn't hear too many reports of uh, unscrupulous activities or, or crime happening up at the site. Uh, was it a little bit better this year than other years, Eric? 
Well, you know, I, I some of that is simply perspective. I mean, in the past, the RCMP used to issue a report talking about people getting speeding tickets 100 miles from here, and because they had a camper, they were sort of attributed that uh, that to Country Fest. So, you know, let's not, not get carried away here. Um, sometimes on the highways around here in the past, there's been an impaired or something like that. Again, number 10 highway runs by the site. It's one of the major ones that goes all the way from Texas to Thompson. So, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, you're going to end up with the auto paired. And for some reason, some of those things sort of get tagged to Country Fest. But, no, Country Fest is a very peaceable, happy sort of a place where people come and they camp together. A lot of people camp with the same people in the same spot. You're allowed to reserve your spot. So a lot of people camp with the friends and neighbors they've met from all over Western Canada, and they come back every year and uh, and have a great time. And it's just the same this year. We have a huge security contingent. The RCMP comes out. We've got uh, first aid people all over the place. But the first aid people really spend a lot of their time just giving people rides around the campsite. You know, we have, you know, our populations in the countryside's getting a little older and you know, some people are not as as mobile as they used to be, so they give them rides around on the gators. The, as far as the medical stuff, it was you know it was cuts and abrasions and that sort of thing. But we had no significant incidents at all. How many campsites do you have in the uh, in the vicinity? Forty two on site. There are forty two hundred campsites, and they were pretty much all used. Wow. It's, it's like a, a village. <laughs> it's a spectacular number. I used to spend a lot of time up in uh, Minnedosa at the festivals there. But this this festival continues to, you know, grow in terms of the acts that it, it brings in. And Eric, it, tell us how you've managed to, to survive. You mentioned uh, some, you know, you alluded to the fact that other festivals are disappearing. The big one in British Columbia, I guess it's Pemberton. Uh, that disappeared this year, and that's not exclusively country music. But these big festivals are a huge undertaking. Uh, how have you managed to to keep things running and steady with the same organization, the same board, and 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 keep things uh, successful for all these years? Well, I think we our heart and soul is in it. I mean, Pemberton lost forty million dollars over the last three years. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's just it's just mind boggling that that people would do that. They had investors. The company that ran it came from Atlanta, and they had no relationship with the local community at all. Uh, it's completely different. I mean, we have ten directors on our board of directors. All of them have good jobs around town. One guy's the 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 runs the uh, the uh, all of the service department of the local local GM dealer, another guy's an accountant, uh, another uh, woman is, uh, she's the economic development officer from the city. I mean, all of these people all have, an insurance, a guy runs an insurance office on Main Street. All of these people love our community and want to do the best, and they all work all year for nothing. And then we have some paid office staff, and, and it's a not-for-profit. So if there's ever a choice between putting the money in our pocket or graveling all of the roads to all of the campsites, which they didn't do in Minnedosa, or adding more porta potties or uh, building more showers or providing more amenities we spend the money on that and uh, and that's what we do you know everything isn't perfect all of the time sometimes we we have a group of people who are all volunteers who are all hard-working people most of them are contractors come out starting two weeks ahead of time in order to mark off and put individual flags in front of 4,200 camp spots so that when people get 
here. They drive up, they see the little flag, and they know where they are. Now, sometimes there's a couple of mistakes in there, some, you know, you can imagine. And, you know, we have another group of, of volunteers who go around on quads in order to, you know, mediate between people who maybe got their campsites mixed up. But we get all of those people in and uh, sort out all of their issues ahead of time. We're the only event that actually, ha- that I know of, that actually has our office window is open to the public. You know, you'll never see that at a football game or a hockey game or another concert or go to any of the other festivals that are on around the province. You'll never see all of the organizers, the chief office staff, I'm there some of the time. There's always a director on duty. So any patron can walk right up and from 9 in the morning to 8 o'clock at night in order to address any issue that they have with respect to the event. And that makes them happy most of the time. And uh, it forces us in order to up our game every year. We get two or three people with a complaint. We say, hey, there's a problem there. We need more water trucks, more septic trucks. We need to fix that road, whatever. We go and do it. So that's why we've been able to stay in business. The other side of it is we really take, we we work hard at, at augmenting revenue. You know, we're selling different kinds of shirts and more ice and doing everything we can as efficiently as possible so that we can put the money in the till in order to pay the artists. And these guys want over a million. You know, I, we don't really talk too much about it publicly, but Luke Bryan was here and it was over a million U.S. I mean, you, it, for a community of size of 10,000 people, that's, that's quite a nut to chew off. And uh, everybody really works hard to, to get together to do it. And everybody in town volunteers for something. People buy a $700, VIP pass and, you know, uh, party at night and they get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and go out and pick up pick garbage with because their kid's in the band program and, and they want to make money to make sure ours is the best band program around. So, and everybody does that. It, so it's a, it's a labor of love for everybody and, uh, and we want to be put our best foot forward. Eric, outstanding recap and uh, insight into your organization. Uh, we have to run, but I want to ask you, when do we find out who's coming for 2018? We announced it actually. We announced Florida Georgia Line Saturday night. Uh, they were they pre-recorded uh, a little uh, interview and they came out on the jumbotrons and we're so happy to come back. So, so there you go. Uh, just by the way, I heard your little uh, thing about the Coney Island hot dog thing. This year, we had a bacon and uh, and maple syrup eating contest just in honor of Canada's 150th. So there you go. But I how did you do, how- Eric? <laughs> I didn't uh, take part. (laughs) Thanks, my friend. We really appreciate it. Congratulations on another successful year. We look forward to learning more about 2018 as uh, we make our way towards Canada Day uh, 151. Yeah, well, please, and, and come on up. It's a sort of different level, different deal than the old Minnedosa Rock Festival. So come and join us. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. I appreciate that. Cheers. Eric Irwin, president of Dauphins Country Fest. And I guess, uh, Greg, the weather was much better this weekend. I remember three years ago, I think it was about three years ago, there was a storm in that that was just hovering. I remember watching the radar, and instead, it wasn't going anywhere. It was just spinning around, and it spun on over top of Dauphin the whole weekend. It was unbelievable. I had friends who were there. They said that they were soaked right through to the bone, but they still had a great time because oh, that's oh. the kind of party that it is. It's a great time. It's a great time. A uh, great time to be had by those heading out to Birds Hill Park this weekend. So as one wraps up, another is on the verge of beginning. Let's find out what's planned for this weekend's Folk Festival up at Birds Hill Park. He's Brett. I'm Greg. I'm Greg. He's Brett. 
McGarry, you ever been to Folk Fest? I have been one time. Elvis Costello was playing. Nice. So that was pretty cool. Mr. Diana Kroll. Sure. Yeah, he's married to Diana. Okay. Kroll. That's what I said. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like uh, uh, Jeff Fisher is, uh, or Mike Fisher of the Predators is uh, Mr. Carrie Underwood, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> as famous as he is in hockey, much more famous as his uh, his spouse is one of the hottest entertainers in all of country music. And I mean, hottest in terms of record sales. And she's kind of hot herself. Yes. I would yes. agree. <laughs> Let's Folk Festival is this weekend. <laughs> Thank you for bailing me out of that one. <laughs> well, you know. You, I dug a hole myself. Oh, I, no. I acknowledge that. Listen, it's true. Lynn Scramita <laughs> is the executive director of the Folk Festival, which is happening this weekend at Birds Hill. And thank you so much for joining us, Lynn. Uh, a year's worth of work is about to come to fruition. You got it. We're very excited. And speaking of hot, the weather is looking great this weekend. Yes, uh, the the weather is always a topic of concern and and all, also a, a source of excitement and focus uh, at the folk festival. But it doesn't seem to matter. Thousands mm-hmm. descend upon uh, Birds Hill Park. How many people actually come to this festival? Because you know, there's always you know the daily totals and and whatnot. Can you sort that out for us a little bit, Lynn? Yeah, How we, many people we, we come? Yeah, we have a cumulative total of about 65000 on average, but we're actually a bit up in ticket sales this year, so we're thinking it might even get higher than that. Why do you uh, think you're up this year? Oh, why? Um, well, I think the lineup is very strong. Um, I think that uh, there's more Canadians staying in Canada this year, not maybe heading south of the border where there's been an administration change and an expensive dollar. So uh, whatever the reason, we're extremely excited that we're going to get a chance to welcome people to the festival site and introduce the festival to people for the first time. So I guess the festival site actually opens tomorrow already. Yeah, yeah. The campgrounds open tomorrow, first thing in the morning, 8 a.m. Both our festival and quiet campgrounds will be open and ready to receive our campers. So do you need to reserve, uh, uh, can you reserve an actual specific campsite, or is it just sort of a first come, first serve? Well, the Birds Hill Provincial Park Campground has been sold out uh, where you do get the individual sites. That's been sold out since March. But when you come down to one of our festival campgrounds, uh, we still have lots of spots left. They're not, it's more that you're staying kind of in a big group area. Um, in, in, actually, it's one of the provincial parks group use areas uh, for our festival and a separate one for our quiet campground. So, yeah, there's lots and lots of space for people to set up. Now, I know in the past it's been a big concern, and we want to help in getting the word out about not lining up on highways. 59 tomorrow. Yeah, that's a really big deal because I know everybody's really excited to get into the campground, but that creates a, a real traffic hazard. Um, there have been a few fender benders in the past, so we really want to avoid that. Everybody's going to get a spot. That's a, that's a for sure thing, and I know people are excited to get in, but uh, we really uh, ask that people don't come too, too early in the morning. What is it about Folkfest that I th- that makes it different than other festivals? I, mean, I have my own sort of feeling on what I and what I experienced, but wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, well, I, I think that our community out there is different from most other places. I mean, we, we like to think of it as the way the world should be. You know, it's, it's smiling people, it's happy people, it's kind and respectful people. And uh, everybody's just sort of there for a good time. It's often the kickoff of summer, and I think that even more so this year since we've had kind of a cooler June. It's a way to just sort of really enjoy what Manitoba has to offer and uh, have a lot of great music and great people around you at the same time. So we just have a couple more minutes with you, Lynn, here. So thanks for taking time with us, but
but I'm looking at this lineup, and we did a bracket challenge in terms of uh, Canadian performers, and I've highlighted uh, one, two, three, four, five performers on your roster for this year's event that made it into our bracket challenge. That really speaks loudly about the quality of entertainment people are going to see this weekend. City in Colour, Feist, Bare Naked Ladies, Bruce Coburn, and John K. Sampson, formerly of the Weaker Thens, now uh, with the Winter Wheat, all were part of our bracket challenge as a 64 top Canadian acts. So uh, good on you for attracting this level of performer because it's something you've been doing since the get-go but really a high concentration this year yeah absolutely i mean this is a great year to do it because we are celebrating our our birthday as a nation but there's just so much great canadian music out there right now that's not only making a a real splash in canada but around the world and uh we're really really excited to have the everybody come together like this i mean feist hasn't been in, in winnipeg for six years and we're getting to present her for the first time again the bare naked ladies last played our festival 25 years ago if you can believe it and um you know they've had such a huge career since then and I think there's a real nostalgic factor for a lot of a lot of people in Winnipeg because that that 25 years ago is when they first broke as, as artists and, and they've gone on to do so many albums and have the theme song to the Big Bang Theory you know so they've really made a, a, a name for themselves not only in Canada but right around the world. One final question. How many volunteers are needed to put on the Folk Festival? We have 2,800 volunteers on 58 different crews. So that's everything from the traffic people you see waving you in the main gate to the uh, people that are helping out in the campground with our safety to the people that are taking your tickets at the door to the people who are cooking food backstage for the performers and volunteers. There's a lot of people that, that we need to make this festival happen because we build a, a community out there. There's over 100 tents that get put up for this festival and we become the third largest community in Manitoba over this weekend. So it takes a lot of people to make that place run. Still tickets available, Lynn? Yep, you betcha. Uh, you can get tickets uh, via our website. Um, we're selling tickets uh, right out of our office right until 5 p.m. tomorrow. And, uh, of course, if you want to just drive right down and, and get them at the gate, you can do that too. Fantastic. We appreciate your time today, Lynn, on such a busy week for you. Lynn Scromita, Executive Director of the Winnipeg Folk Festival. We are coming up to 2 o'clock on 680 CJOB. After Global News, we will have our monthly visit with the Mood Disorders Association of Manitoba. 2.06 on this Tuesday afternoon. Keep it locked to 680 CJOB as we have active weather in the area, including uh, several uh, severe thunderstorm watches and warnings uh, in and around southeastern Manitoba, including the city of Winnipeg. Brett McGarry keeping you up to date at the top of the bottom of the hour with global news and weather. But if uh, anything happens in the meantime, we will let you know. And if you can do so safely, if you're seeing active weather out there and ramifications of that weather, send us a text message with a picture, please. 780-6868. We love uh, to get that feedback. And just before we get into our next conversation, you may have heard the promotion just before the news, but we want to remind you starting this Friday, Brett McGarry and I will be on a patio. We might not necessarily have our feet up, but we will may have a beverage of some sort in our hand, and we're going to invite you to 
sneak out of work a little bit early and join us at Santa Lucia on St. Mary's Road. We'll be there every Friday in July from 1 till 4. And if you go to cjob.com, you can enter your name to win a table for four with a $100 tab at Santa Lucia Pizza St. Mary's. And that's for every Friday, once again, until the end of July. So that's pretty cool. Looking forward to that. Santa Lucia, very good. It's all about the sauce, Greg. We are going to get out of the building a little bit early. Uh, our topics of conversation uh, may drift somewhat as we sit staring at the, the delicious Santa Lucia pizza in front of us. But we promise to bring our A game on Friday afternoons because I suspect, I suspect if we don't, Brett, they're going to take that privilege away from us very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. how it works, right? I think so. <laughs> The Blue Bombers, by the way, uh, kick off uh, their home season after that 43-40 thrilling victory in Regina on Canada Day at the new Mosaic Stadium. Double overtime win for the Blue Bombers. So they're 1-0. Calgary Stampeders coming in to face the Blue Bombers on Friday night at IGF. It's the first Tuesday of the month, which means it is time for our 2 o'clock visit with the Mood Disorders Association of Manitoba. And in studio we have with us Adam Milne, who is the volunteer coordinator as well as an outreach worker. And we're talking about peer support today. Adam, I understand that uh, you folks are, are proposing an initiative about peer support. Can you tell us what that is? What we've been talking about, and it's, it's not just us talking about it, uh, the Manitoba government and a few other organizations in mental health have been doing it is talking about putting peer support workers in emergency rooms. So we're talking about the waiting rooms, not in the the doctor's offices themselves, so that people have someone to talk to while they're waiting, someone that uh, has a good understanding of what they're going through that they can communicate with until they can actually get in to see somebody because those waits can sometimes be long. The waits in, in emergency rooms, obviously a large topic of conversation in our province right now as the number of waiting rooms and ERs in general is going to shrink. So do you think that this may make this service that much more valuable? I think that it will. I also think that by having people who can talk to those in distress at the moment, you're going to take a lot of the pressure off the the nursing staff who are going to, you know, the monitoring and things like that. I mean, we're not going to be putting health professionals in the waiting room with peer support workers. It's I mean, we offer a peer support program at the Mood Disorders Association right now. And so those kind of people, staff members, would be coming in and just giving people an ear to talk to and resources that they can use to kind of help them sort out their issues while they're waiting to see the doctor or the psychiatrist. So how many people would be needed to do this? Like, for example, in uh, the emergency room, uh, waiting room at the Health Sciences Center, for example, how many people would would, would you be hoping to have on staff at a given time? As far as peer support is concerned. I think the numbers, we'd have to actually get the Health Science Center to determine how much of the need would be. But I could easily see between one and three people in the emergency room all the time. Um, I can't imagine that the new emergency room at Grace is going to be any different. It's a fairly significant structure. Um, and so for those those locations, I mean, having those people on all the time, I think, would be would be very helpful to the people waiting. We hear that terminology and we've heard it used by Mood Disorders Association right here on this program, but maybe just give us a rundown and some insight as to what peer support looks like. Is it different than traditional conversation with the caregiver? Maybe just give us uh, the inside scoop on peer support and why it's so effective. 
The effectiveness in peer support comes from the fact that the person that you're talking to is someone with lived experience, with their own obstacles that they've overcome or that they're going through currently. And so when you're talking to someone who understands, you really don't have to explain it. And that's one of the most difficult parts when you're dealing with a mental health concern is actually explaining what the feelings are like because to the average person, it's, it's not the same because de- depressed isn't sad. Um, bipolar isn't really happy and really sad. It's, it's, it's a large combination of things. And when you don't have to explain it, you can really just talk about where your troubles are without having to start over all the time, which is a trouble you can get when you, when you have to deal with a nurse and then a doctor and then a psychiatrist is you're going through your story repeatedly. And so when you have someone who doesn't need the basics, you can just connect with them. And that's what peer support really is about, is about someone who's willing to listen and connect and understand you and then hopefully point you towards some resources or a support group or things that can help you get where you want to go. Is that a stumbling block for a lot of people, that whole idea of starting over every time you see someone new? How many times have you been transferred in technical support to somebody new and then had to start over again? How frustrated do you get? And that's just because your phone doesn't work. That's a fantastic analogy. Absolutely fantastic analogy, Adam. So, you know, so so take that to the next level for us and and show us how that can be effective in terms of engaging people. Because I always say, and maybe you can correct me on this, uh, when we cut supports or when we don't have enough supports, we never know when that magical day is when someone who's dealing with bipolar, something that's not yet diagnosed, you may only have one chance with that person who says, yep, today's the day I go to get help. And if the door is closed, the door is locked, or there are not support systems in place at the particular time on that particular day, you may have lost an opportunity that may not come around for that person. And on that day, when you sit in a chair for two, four, six, eight hours waiting for the help that you finally worked up the courage to get to, by the time you hit that point, you're too exhausted to then still continue with what you wanted to do. And that's where having somebody in the waiting room, talking to people, going around and checking and having those conversations lets people get these emotions off their chest so they're not staring them in the face all the time. They're not cycling through it in their head. I mean, that's, I think most people's biggest obstacles when they're dealing with, well, should I be doing this or shouldn't I, is you get stuck in your own head. You start going over the same facts and you start doubting yourself because we're not inherently a confident uh, group of people, human beings. And so when you have that ability to talk about it, it really puts it into perspective for you. And it also gives you the chance that when someone says, yes, you know, like you're in the right place, you are here to get help and you're doing the right thing for yourself, then they'll stick around. Then they might actually get the help they need. And that's that's what we're here for. I mean, how many times have you been up at night, probably later than you should be, thinking about all the problems you're dealing with that day, the next morning you wake up and you talk to someone about it, and it just seems easier when you're not by yourself. So are we talking about uh, having peer support in emergency room waiting rooms for people who are going to an emergency room by themselves as opposed to going with, uh, say, their, their partner or a friend or a family member or what have you? I don't think it needs to be limited to one or the other. I think we sometimes forget about the family members in this picture. Very often, the family member doesn't really know what they're dealing with either. Um, I'm a person with people in my family, my mom specifically, who has bipolar disorder, and she didn't understand it for most of her life. So for someone else to understand it in her family when she couldn't even tell us what it was, if she would have really needed help, 
there wouldn't have been a lot that I, I could have went and sat with her, but there wasn't a lot that I could tell her. There wasn't a lot that I could do. I mean, certainly now that situation's changed, but for a long time that wasn't the case. And so that family member is potentially in just as much need of support as anyone else because they need to know what they what's okay and what's not okay because there's a lot of myths about what you can and can't tell somebody who has a mental health problem. I want to ask you, and only what you feel comfortable sharing, of course, Adam, that, that situation that your mom deals with on a daily basis and how that cascades down into your different family members. I don't know how many siblings you've got. I have one brother, older. And I mean, it's something that we lived myself. My mom had bipolar disorder. She passed away at the age of 51, a physical ailment that was direct result of her battling her depression. She developed a pulmonary embolism in her heart. She hadn't been active for weeks and weeks, wasn't talking to people, wasn't active. And although she didn't take her own life, her depression was responsible, in my opinion, for her passing. And so this is very important to me. I'm curious to know how this has affected you and your brother and how you've managed to to get educated so that you can be as helpful to her as possible. The reality is until basically we were adults, we didn't know what the problem was. And people ask me, well, what's it like to have a mom who's bipolar? And I asked them what it's like to have a mom who's not. Because I didn't know any different. That was just my mom. It's who she is. And I think that, deviating from your question just a little bit, that that can be an issue, is the fact that we start identifying people as a specific illness. And then they start identifying themselves that way. And so to me, my mom was my mom. And the best way that we could help her was just to be with her and do things. And and that's always been the case. It's still the case today. Um I mean, my mom has struggled with this, I'm going to say, most of her life, if not all of her life. But at the same time, as we speak, um, my daughter, who's three, uh, my niece and my nephew, who are three and four, are with her right now. They spend multiple days a week with her. And at this point, she loves having them. Like, it's, it's a big deal for her to be in a place where she can actually do that. And she has been in the darkest parts of the bipolar disorder. So for my brother and I, it was about learning what that meant and what that didn't mean, and that we really just needed to see what she was like and what she needed, and so that we could be, you know, do what we needed to do, and so that she could be in a place where she could contribute in life and in our family the way that she wanted to. And that's the biggest part. We have to take a break. When we come back, I want to ask you about retrospect. And now that you know what your mom's been dealing with for all these years, if if putting those pieces of the puzzle together uh, make your upbringing a little bit more, maybe you're more comfortable in it. I want to ask you about that because it's a challenge that um, myself and my siblings have faced. And if we have two people in the same room dealing with this, I know there are others listening that that are trying to to tie those things up for themselves. We'll do that when we come back. He's Brett. I'm Greg. We're talking with our friend Adam Milne from the Mood Disorders Association of Manitoba. Hope you're having a fantastic day. Happy birthday, America, by the way. I'm Brett. He is Greg. Adam Milne is our guest. He is with the Mood Disorders Association of Manitoba, a volunteer coordinator and outreach worker. And we're talking about peer support. Mood Disorders Association proposing an initiative to have peer support, to have people in waiting rooms, in emergency rooms, so that if you go to an emergency room, you have someone to talk to right there in the ER. And Adam, are, is this just for, would this just be for people who go to the ER with a, a mental wellness issue? Or would this be, like, let's say I break my leg and I'm freaking out about it and I go to the ER. Would, would it be for that as well? 
I think it would be primarily for people dealing with a mental health condition, but I also think that the average person could benefit from this as well. I think anyone who's been in the ER for more than an hour knows how isolating that room really can be, even though you're surrounded by other people. And I think that if you can get someone that can talk to you, it'll relieve your fears and it'll make the situation of being in an emergency room less traumatic for you. Because that's really why we're there is some kind of traumatic scenario. I mean, breaking your leg, um, feeling suicidal, uh, having something on your insides hurt so much you don't know what the problem is. I mean, these are all these are all traumatic events. And so if we can reduce the level of trauma in someone's life by just talking to someone about it, then we're doing a lot for them that people deserve. Have you ever had to go sit and wait in an emergency room for anything? I've had to go there for a couple of things, but my most significant was uh, I had appendicitis and they had to take out my appendix. And so that wait was a long time and... Well, it felt a long time. It was probably only an hour, but it felt like it was a long time. And when you're in pain, you have no concept of the time. And you're just sitting there staring at the nurse, begging for her to call your name, and people come in and out ahead of you. <laughs> and it's it's a frightening place to be. Uh, my brother had a fairly significant concussion, and they took him into a room. And he was sitting there, and we waited for him for an hour and a half, and no one came out and talked to us, and we weren't supposed to go in and see him. And I knew how bad his head was. And it was scary as a family member to just sit and wait. And as a family member, I could have used someone to just get those fears out too so that it wouldn't be, I wouldn't just be holding on to it and increasing it in my head. Rationality would kick in. Yeah, so much of it is just speaking your mind and getting it out, right? Oh, I feel so much better. I talked about it. Thanks for listening, right? And just uh, sometimes it's an information dump, but it's what you need to do is to say it out loud. And I know the other side of it is is just knowing and understanding either what's wrong with you and having a diagnosis. That can be very helpful. Very helpful. And also when there's others around. And we mentioned before the break that that, that we have in common, uh, mother, uh, my mom's past, your mom's still around yes. dealing with bipolar. She uh, is a great grandma, not, not a great grandma, but an excellent grandmother, <laughs> looks after her uh, grandkids and is doing so as we speak right now. But uh, that whole idea of looking back and now understanding what your mom's been been dealing with all these year, years and, and tying her diagnosis and her illness together. Does it, is there some consolation there for you in understanding uh, some of the challenges that you and your brother might have dealt with growing up that are not necessarily normalized, but maybe explained now? I think my mom did a fantastic job of concealing it. I think that for a lot of years, we only really saw little snippets of it. But when she really started having a breakdown was you know, much later in life. And so Understanding then what we were really dealing with, I think, made all the difference because it wasn't this unexplained thing that was just happening and it was happening to all of us. It was, okay, well, this is what it is and this is what we need to do to deal with it. And I think it's cathartic to really get an understanding of what has, what affects your life. And without that diagnosis and without, really, and without her getting the right amount of help, I think we were all kind of at a loss as to what the problem really was. We kind of blame it on other things like she's – you know, if she's addicted to something or if she's doing something she's not supposed to be doing, like, well, why would you do that? And when you have a reason for it, you go, well, if I was in that situation, I don't know that I wouldn't have done the same thing. Well, I would sure want you as my peer support. I'll tell you that, uh, knowing what I know about you now. So that's an outstanding uh, proposal. And uh, please keep us up to date on on where things are at in terms of this proposal. Adam, what's uh, the website for the Mood Disorders Association? www.mooddisordersassociation, oh, sorry, mooddisordersmanitoba.ca. 
moodisordersmanitoba.ca. And is there a way to, uh, is there contact information for you as a volunteer coordinator? Uh, when you call in, we have a general line that goes to the volunteers who are offering peer support. We're open 9 to 9, Monday to Friday. In September, we're going to be open on the weekends from 10 until 6. And the phone number is 204-786-0987. All right. Well, Adam, thank you so much. We could have gone on for another half an hour, uh, but we do have to call it here. So Adam Milne is the volunteer coordinator and outreach worker with the Mood Disorders Association of Manitoba. After Global News at 2.30, we're going to play you a conversation that Tristan Field-Jones and I recorded on Friday, but we're unable to get to. It had to do with Canada Day and our first Prime Minister. It's a great, fascinating conversation, so stick around for that. Global News is next. Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling. Now, on Friday, Greg Mackling was sitting in for Hal Anderson, who was sitting in for Jeff Courier. So Tristan Field-Jones sat in for Greg Mackling on this show, and we recorded an interview for Canada Day on the subject of our country's first Prime Minister. It was a great interview. Unfortunately, we did not have time to run it because we instead covered the big story of Friday afternoon, which was the protest on Highway 1 East at Deacon's Corner. So instead, we thought, well, let's play it on Tuesday. It was a really interesting interview. So here we go. I will let Tristan set it up. Brett, when I say John A. McDonald, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, I don't know, uh, alcoholic racist? <laughs> That's a bit of a caricature, I think, uh, that many Canadians have. And I suspect, uh, Brett, your comments may uh, make our uh, next guest here a little bit uh, uh, miffed, if we shall put it that way. Uh, Patrice Dutil, he is a uh, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. He's also co-editor of McDonald at 200, New Reflections and Legacies. Uh, Canada's very first Prime Minister, Johnny McDonald, celebrated his what would have been his 200th birthday a couple years ago. And Patrice uh, uh, co-edited a fantastic book. Uh, and he's written a lot about why the kind of caricature that we have of him as a racist, a, a genocidal maniac, that sort of thing why he's he's written a lot about why that is not accurate and why we should remember him more appropriately. And uh, Patrice, I guess my first question for you, sir, is yes, um, I... where does that caricature come from? Because I think that's a lot of people see our very first prime minister in that manner. Well, let's say that the first one is about drinking. And there's no doubt that uh, John A. for a good part of his life, not all his life, uh, was a drinker. And he never hid from it. He didn't, he didn't deny it. He always admitted that he was a, a drinker. And, and, and again, most people in his day were drinkers. It's not, uh, it's not a coincidence that a whole movement uh, you know, rose up against drinking and against alcohol that eventually led to prohibition. So that's one thing. And that, that, that's sort of contemporary to Johnny McDonald. The other one about the, the, the genocide, that is recent. That's just a few years old. Uh, and um, uh, that, that uh, is, is, is unjustified. I want to get back to the drink for a second. Um, John A. drank heavily for a while, um, but he stopped uh, when he came to Toronto. <laughs> when he came to Toronto in the mid-1870s, uh, by that time he, he stopped drinking and or, or drinking heavily. He was no longer drunk in public. And for the last 15, 20 years of his life, um, lived um, very ordinary circumstances. Now, as far as his drinking goes, just based on, on what you've written here, it would seem to me that maybe a lot of that had to do with self-medicating, perhaps? Well, there's no doubt, and people do have to appreciate, although this is not an excuse for it, but McDonald did have a lot of very heavy 
personal problems at the time. Um, you know, his first wife was terribly ill uh, for most of their marriage, and there is no doubt that there is a, a coincidence between her uh, illnesses and, and his despair. Uh, she died in 1856, and uh, John A. was alone raising uh, a boy, uh, wasn't particularly happy about that. He has a lot of financial difficulties. Johnny McDonald never made a lot of money. Um, he, and you know, until the 1870s, uh, he, he was strapped for cash. So, you know, here's a guy who's got a lot of ambition. He's uh, a very able politician. He knows that. At the same time, you know, there's no money to be made in politics alone. You've got you to gotta fend for yourself in business. So he's trying to do that. It's not working out. He's not a great businessman. So, you know, he's got financial stresses. He's got personal stresses. Uh, he gets married again in 1867, and he's got the whole stress of confederation on his shoulders. He's not alone in, 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 in holding that burden, but again, it's very, very difficult for him, and there's no doubt that he drinks heavily uh, in the first years of confederation. It takes Toronto, believe me, it takes Toronto to sober you up. And so he comes to Toronto and uh, sobers up in the mid-1870s. <laughs> Why did it take Toronto to sober him up? Oh, I'm just joking. I mean, Toronto the good, you know? It's, it's a question of... <laughs> John A. was defeated. Uh, getting back to, 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 to politics, he was defeated in the 1874 election and uh, decided uh, he didn't want to hang out in opposition uh, so much. I mean, he stayed as leader of the opposition, but he moved to Toronto. Uh, he moved to Toronto to fix his business affairs, uh, to start something of a new life, maybe. His son was in Toronto. Uh, and John A. bought a house uh, in, 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 in Toronto and settled down. And that's where he also came up with this new idea of the national policy of, of rebuilding Canadian, the Canadian economy by protecting industry. So I have no doubt that the, Canadian, the Toronto businessmen had a huge influence on him. And that's what led to the national policy. He was elected triumphantly in 1878 and remained Prime Minister of Canada until his death in June of 1791. Uh, Patrice, we mentioned uh, briefly about uh, how, uh, you know, one of the uh, um, characteristics, if you will, associated with them is people label him as a genocidal maniac and someone who is highly racist. But you would argue that that really is a caricature and it's a lot more complicated than that. Well, it is. And you have to put you have to put people in their context. And that's the thing about history. I mean, and then to treat history fairly. So that one day we ourselves will be treated fairly. You do have to put people in their context. Johnny MacDonald had complicated views about the Indians, about Aboriginal Canadians, and his views were informed by the uh, the Aboriginals that he lived with in Ontario, the ones that he saw, the ones that he uh, frequented, the ones that he was friends with, because he was personal friends with many Aboriginal men. Uh, and his view of, of, of Aboriginal Canada was that it was, in fact, on the way to assimilation. There is no denying, there is no denying the fact that John A. Macdonald wished for the Indians of Canada, the Indigenous people of Canada, to be assimilated, to join the modern world, to go to school, to get jobs, to farm the land, to do what everybody else did. That was his view. That was the view of all his contemporaries. Uh, so he put in place some policies to do that. One of them was schooling. And again, in a case like that, we have to remember that the Indigenous policy demanded education. They wanted education. 
where things went terribly wrong, of course, is was in the application of the policy. And, you know, Johnny McDonald bears responsibility for that. Again, it's undeniable. But his intentions were not genocidal in the sense of killing people off uh, en masse. It was a question of having them join modern living. And again, today we can easily say this was wrong thinking. This was wrong. And we can say that it was too fast and we would be right. But in those days, people did not think like that. John A. thought like everybody else. And that was the that's the explanation for the policy. It's interesting you bring up uh, the term uh, the, the genocide when we refer to this because I, I believe it was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recently that mentioned that what we had done, we had committed what they refer to as cultural genocide. And what I found particularly uh, interesting and, and even controversial about that term was, as you mentioned, some of these policies, their application was terrible and there was immense suffering in the residential schools, but ultimately in a really twisted and strange way, the intentions behind this was good. But when you look at the results, it's very difficult to see the good intentions. And indeed. And you have to remember also, the, we're, talking, we're, not, we're talking about results here over 100 years, 150 years. So, you know, to blame McDonald for the sins of everybody who succeeded him, including Pierre Trudeau. You know, let's not forget that in 1969, Pierre Trudeau proposed now, the father of the current prime minister proposed a white paper on indigenous policy that would eliminate Indian, the Indian Act and force the Aboriginal people to live under common law. Now, again, we're talking about 1970. That's just recent. Uh, but that was still the thinking. How do we get the indigenous people of Canada to join the mainstream? This is, that was the thinking. So, you know, we can, we can point the finger at our ancestors and say, you terrible fools, you didn't know what you were doing, but you have to understand this is the job of historians and of, you know, of educators to, to demonstrate that, look, you know, the, the people there had intentions, fairly good intentions. They didn't have genocidal intentions. They simply wanted people to be like everybody else. Let's remember that Johnny McDonald was living at a time of great, where there, where there was a great deal of strife between the Catholics and the Protestants and the English and the French, trying to knit together a country that makes no sense at all. But this is why, you know, I, I certainly think fondly of Johnny McDonald is that notwithstanding all the difficulties, the difficulties that drove him to drink, by the way, you know, he managed to knit together, not him alone, but with, with a bunch of people, knit together a country that we can be grateful for 150 years later. We've accomplished a great deal. Patrice Dutille is professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University and co-editor of McDonald at 200 New Reflections and Legacies. And this is an interview that I recorded with Tristan Field-Jones on Friday as Tristan was filling in for Greg, talking about John A. McDonald, the first prime minister of this country, and why Patrice says we should cast out the caricature of McDonald and respect him as the founder he was. We were hoping to run this interview on Friday, leading into the Canada Day long weekend, but we had breaking news on Friday, so we had to push this aside until today, and we will continue this chat in a moment. Your forecast is up next. Just so there's no confusion, it's 29 degrees with the Humidex. Feels like 32 degrees, Brett. It's hot! Hot! 
Patrice Dutil is a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University and co-editor of McDonald at 200, New Reflections and Legacies. On Friday afternoon, Tristan Field-Jones and I had a conversation with Patrice. We actually had the conversation with him Friday morning, which we had hoped to play Friday afternoon on this show, but we had to set it aside. Talking about John A. Macdonald, the first prime minister of our country, and why Patrice says we should cast out this caricature of Macdonald and respect him as the founder he was. So let's play some more of that conversation now. Patrice, circling back to this notion that John A. Macdonald was a raging racist, as far as Chinese migrants are concerned, what was the situation as far as McDonald's approach goes? Well, that's another great question. So here's, here's the issue. Uh, there's two things. In 1885, John A. McDonald presents a new bill uh, to expand the, um, the suffrage, to allow more people to vote. And when I say people, we're talking about men, to allow more men to vote. And in that debate, uh, John A. is, is uh, heckled and you know, he's asked about his intentions with this bill. And then one thing that caught the eye of parliamentarians was the fact that John A. had specified that the Chinese would not be allowed to vote. So, yes, that is racist. What was John A.'s rationale? He said, it's, he said it clearly in, the, um, in, the, in, 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 in Parliament. He said, we don't want to give the Chinese the vote, the right to vote, because they don't understand our culture. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, the reality was that the Chinese that were coming to Canada were from mainland China. There was no democracy in mainland China. They had no idea of what democracy was like. They had simply no cultural connection with the idea that you can actually vote for your representative and that that representative would cast a vote in parliament on your behalf. Now, people heckled them. They said, well, what about blacks? What about what about them? And Johnny McDonald said, absolutely, you give these people the vote. They know freedom. They know our culture. They know what democracy is about. What about Indians, they said. Johnny McDonald said, absolutely, they understand our culture. They give the Indians the right to vote. So when you say that, you know, China, that uh, Johnny McDonald was anti-Chinese, you have to understand that he was looking at our political culture, and he was, you know, most of these people, these men, uh, from China, were only coming in as temporary workers. They were going back, so he didn't want to have a situation where temporary workers would be given allowed, were given the right to vote. Again, remember that we're not not dealing with citizenship papers in those days, right? So that was the idea. Now, the other thing, of course, is the Chinese head tax, and we always talk about that, and with reason. Again, why why is this racist? Because the Chinese were the only people who were imposed uh, a tax, uh, a, a, an entry fee into Canada. Patently unfair, absolutely racist, undeniably. But here's the difference between Canada and Australia and America, the two other magnet countries for the Chinese. The Australians said, under no circumstance will you immigrate to our country. The same thing happened in the United States. They barred the way. Canada said, yeah, you can still come here. We're just going to charge you an entrance fee. Now, why did he do that? Johnny McDonald had no intention to do that. He even called a commission a royal commission to investigate this idea of Chinese immigration and how can we, how can we cope with it? And the, the, the commission came back saying, you know, the Chinese are okay. You know, they're, 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 they're good immigrants. They're law-abiding. There's no reason to, 
to do anything that would harm their, their, their participation. The reason why he did it was because in British Columbia, there was so much pressure to act. And John A., as a good politician, was quite concerned about losing votes in British Columbia. And so he acted the way he did. It was a compromise. You know, seen from 2017, it just stinks. But seen from the perspective of 1885, you know, it was an agreeable compromise. John A. never campaigned on this. He never bragged about it. It was something that he had to do to bid, you know, to get some peace. And it worked. It stinks. And it lasted. You have to remember, it lasted for another, what, 40, 50 years after that. So you can blame John A., but blame every one of his successors at the same time. As we celebrate 150 years of Canada and we look back on our accomplishments and the people who shaped this country, you know, at the very start, we mentioned the caricature of Johnny McDonald and how most Canadians remember him as. Patrice, how would you like Canada to remember Johnny McDonald? Well, I think he, we have to, I, I'd like people to think of Johnny McDonald kindly. I'll put it, I'll say that up front. I'd like to see him remembered as a man of great ambitions for our country. A man who started with, you know, as an immigrant, let's not forget, he's a, he's a Scottish immigrant. He comes to Canada, he gets involved in politics from very early age. And from the beginning, he sees that there's something in this land that is special. With all the discord, again, I emphasize between the Protestants and the Catholics, the French and the English, he sees that there is great potential in our people to accomplish something wonderful. At the same time, he wants to protect Canada from the United States. And he does not like the American example. He wants something distinctive. He wants a distinctive Canadian nation. And he works towards that. I remember Johnny McDonald as a man of extraordinary vision, of extraordinary patience. Personally, I see him as a man who worked very hard. I've done a lot of research on the working habits of our first prime ministers. I have a new book on that. And I'm so totally impressed with the workaholic Johnny McDonald and what he accomplished. He made mistakes. We have to acknowledge those mistakes. He had flaws. We have to acknowledge those flaws. But at the same time, I ask you, was there ever in our country a more visionary man or woman than John A. McDonald? And we can have great debates about that. I look forward to them. But I tell you, you're going to be hard-pressed to show me or anyone that John A. McDonald can be bested on his views of Canada. So 150 years later, the fact is we're a prosperous nation. We have a lot of work to do in order to ensure fairness and justice. That's undeniable. But my goodness, what we've accomplished in 150 years from a dirt poor country to where we are now, I think we have we have people to thank. Johnny, one of them, many, 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 many others. Our forefathers have to be thanked. But this is something worth remembering as we celebrate the 150th. Patrice Dutille, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University and co-editor of McDonald at 200, New Reflections and Legacies. We spoke with him Friday morning. Me and Tristan Field-Jones, we were unfortunately were not able to run the interview then, which is why we ran it now. We just thought this guy was great. We wanted you to hear the conversation. It is coming up to 3 o'clock on 680 CJOB. I guess for the last couple of days, news has broken that the federal government of Canada will be issuing a substantial check to Omar Cotter. The deal revealed by the Canadian press by an unnamed government official was reportedly negotiated 
By Cotter's lawyers last month, the Canadian government set to apologize and give $10.5 million to Omar Cotter, who spent 10 years at the U.S. military prison in Guantanamo Bay. He was captured as a boy soldier in Afghanistan. He had sued the federal government for $20 million. And reading this news and seeing the text messages come in, and you know, earlier we had uh, listeners reacting on Jeff Courier, and I thought... There's one listener I'm curious to know what he thinks about all this, and his name is Charles Adler, host of Charles Adler Tonight from 9 until midnight weeknights on 680 CJOB. And Charles, you know, when I worked with you as your technical producer, I remember you had all sorts of passionate things to say about Omar Cotter. What do you have to say today? It's difficult for me to ever... uh, sign off on uh, the idea of apologizing uh, to someone who was responsible for killing one of our allies, and if he had a chance, would have killed many other allies and many of our own uh, people. So when someone wants to take up arms against uh, either our people or allies, and to me it's the same when we're in war, it's just very, very hard for me to to want to say, I'm sorry. And uh, some people feel that that's my problem, that I'm not uh, charitable enough and generous enough to People who want to throw grenades at us and build uh, roadside bombs and uh, blow our people up. I'm not going to apologize for that either. Charles, how do we square that circle for those of us? I count myself as one who, when you commit an act like that, you might as well have your Canadian passport strapped to that grenade because you are, in all for all intents and purposes, in my opinion, uh, destroying that passport and any connection you have to Canada with uh, an act such as what Omar Cotter committed. The, the idea that you can be both a citizen and uh, someone who wants to commit war against the country, that's a circle that I can't help you square. Because, I mean, I can I can do the legal thing here. I mean, that's what everyone's doing. I mean, we do have the rule of law, and ultimately we respect the rule of law. Uh, that doesn't mean we have to like it. And uh, for those of us who, I think, make the, the tragic error of slipping on that banana peel uh, that makes us believe that just because it's a law, it's ethical, or just because it's a law, it's moral. That's ridiculous. It's a, it's a legal system. It's there for a reason. And it's better than not having a legal system. I'm not uh, advocating anarchy or anything like that. That's, that's not who I am. But I'm not a fool. And I'd have to be a fool uh, to pretend that the legal system on this is moral. It's not. So Omar Cotter getting $10.5 million, set to get $10.5 million from the federal government as a settlement. Charles, we have a text here at 204-780-6868 that says, He deserves every penny. He was a child who was tortured by the U.S. military, and Stephen Harper was complicit in keeping him in unlawful detention and did nothing to protect a Canadian citizen. A Canadian citizen is a Canadian citizen no matter what. Even if he did throw a grenade at an American soldier, it's not as evil as jailing and torturing a juvenile while denying them proper medical care. What do you think of that? Well, that's an interesting uh, point of view. Uh, That, of course, uh, wouldn't be his point of view if it was uh, his dad uh, that got the grenade in the teeth. It wouldn't be his uh, point of view if he was a member of a Canadian military family with skin in the game. When, when you look at things from an academic per- perspective or an intel- in sort of a, an ideological perspective, of course, uh, you don't like the American government, uh, uh, you don't like war, uh, you don't like uh, Stephen Harper. I mean, I, I invite you to spend 
24 hours with the gang at Al-Qaeda. See how you like them. So, Charles, the uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation as well has started an online petition. I actually took a call in our newsroom from somebody who said, we, we have to... We have to revolt. I mean, we can't just accept this and sit back and, and just accept this. And uh, I know that that sentiment is being echoed by many. So what do you think, uh, what do you think comes next as far as people who are just want to, want to speak out and, and say enough is enough? I think people should have the right to speak out, uh, whether it's on this program or through various organizations like Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Look, uh, the Conservatives politically are on are on the side of the, the majority on this, I have no doubt. But even the Conservatives, I mean, within hours of this uh, story, are out with the fundraiser. And substantively, I don't disagree with what they're saying in their fundraising letter. Uh, my, my problem is that they're taking something very, very important, near and dear uh, to our hearts, especially those of us who are either military families or highly connected to them. And they're they're pimping it. I, I don't use that word um, promiscuously uh, or casually. I mean, they are they are exploiting this story right now. The conservatives are to make money. They're asking people to give them money because they're giving people this information that, of course, everyone knows. And I, I guess they're going to create the impression in the minds of the so-called base who are vulnerable to to giving them money at the drop of the hat. I guess they'll try to convince the base that they're going to do something about this. But there's nothing that can be done. I mean, we, we can speak, and I'm glad that we're having a chance to have an exchange of ideas in a, in a democracy called Canada. But the, the idea that there's anything the Conservatives uh, can do about this or the Canadian Taxpayers Federation or anyone else, substantively, that's, that's just not on. It's called a, uh, the Government of Canada is a corporation, and there's a CEO of that corporation, and it's uh, Justin Trudeau, just as Stephen Harper was a couple of years ago. And uh, when Stephen Harper was making decisions like this, there was absolutely nothing that the opposition could do. So the, the, the toothpaste isn't going to go back into the tube. If the agreement is $10 million, $10 million will go to Omar Khadr. And there's absolutely nothing that the Conservatives or the CTF or any other organization that on any given day you and I may support, uh, we can uh, support them rhetorically. And if it makes people feel good uh, to give them money, that's fine. Uh, but the idea that uh, the $10 million won't be going to Omar Khadr, this is, in my mind, gross and despicable. And uh, I, the only way that I would hand over that kind of money is if a judge forced me to. A judge did not force uh, the Liberals to do this. They did this to avoid uh, a case. And maybe they wanted to avoid the case because their own names would be besmirched, because none of this would be happening right now if it weren't for the fumbling uh, of the Jean Chrétien government. They had the opportunity to bring back uh, Cotter to Canada. They had the opportunity to prosecute Cotter uh, in Canada and put him in a Canadian penitentiary. Now, he may not have been there very long because he was a juvenile, I'll give you that. But the Canadian government screwed up big time, and my guess is that the current Liberal government doesn't want to go to court and have all of that laid out in front of the public. How will you be approaching this story on your program tonight, Charles? I'll be discussing it just as I am now. I'll do a monologue, uh, I'll interview a number of people, including uh, David Aiken, who has been to Guantanamo twice. And uh, David Aiken is the, one of the most hardworking journalists in the world. I'm so glad to have him under the, the, the chorus uh, slash global umbrella right now. So he's the chief political correspondent uh, for Global. He happens to be with the prime minister right now in Dublin. And I guess tomorrow they'll be in, in Scotland. 
But I'll get uh, David on, and I'll get a number of other people on, and I, I encourage everyone to discuss and talk about this. Uh, this is not, I don't want any one of our listeners to get the impression that, that we don't give a damn. We really do give a damn. I just don't want anyone to get the impression that legally speaking, there's anything that can be done to reverse the decision. Charles Adler, thank you so much for joining us on short notice. I, I, I emailed Charles 10 minutes ago and said, hey, Chuck, you want to come on to the show to talk about Omar Cotter? And sure enough, he answers the call and he will have more on Charles Adler tonight, which is on from 9 until midnight on 680 CJOB and across the Chorus Radio Network. We'll have a look at traffic as well as weather up next. How old were you in 1984? Seven. Do you remember when the Blue Bombers won the Great Cup? No. <laughs> That was the first time in 22 years they'd won, and now we're in a 26, 27-year slump. They've only won one Grey Cup in... Zero since 1990. Yeah. They won in 84, 88, and 1990. So it's been 27 years, but they had a 22-year drought before winning in 1984. And one of the main architects of that victory in 1984, good old coach Cal, Cal Murphy, the now late Cal Murphy, will have a statue erected in his honor at Investors Group Field. So congratulations to the Murphy family, an incredibly perfect way to honor the legacy of Cal Murphy, who brought winning football back to Winnipeg. He was born in Winnipeg, which is so cool to know that Coach Cal had not only done what he did in Winnipeg football history, but to do it as a born Winnipegger, I always thought was something that was very special. He brought Matt Dunnigan to Winnipeg. That didn't produce a Grey Cup, but the Blue Bombers victories in 84, 88, 90. Then they went on to appear in the Grey Cup. I want to try and hit all of them. I think it was 93, 94, and then again in 2000. uh, But I I could be wrong on that. You're like a Wikipedia page. I do my best. I do my best. Uh, The bottom line is the Blue Bombers went to the Grey Cup five times in nine years, and then won it three times. It was pretty spectacular times around here. So, Encyclopedia Greg Maclinica? I don't know. Just trying to make something (laughs) up that's really bad. Uh, 322 on 680 CJOB. We're still going to tell you a little bit about what is coming up this Friday in case you missed it earlier. We are doing something pretty neat on Fridays for the next month or so, so we'll give you details on that. But in the meantime, we'll have another look at your forecast and sports starting in two minutes. You want to hang out with us on Friday afternoon? You can. It's pretty easy, actually. Go to Santa Lucia on St. Mary's Road. We'll be there from 1 till 4. They're fantastic. Roof, top, patio. We're celebrating summer. What are we calling it? A patio palooza? Looks like that. Mackling and McGarry patio palooza at Santa Lucia Pizza St. Mary's. Go to cjob.com where you can enter your name to win a table for four with a $100 tab at the restaurant. So when you go to the website, I'm just going to walk you through this because we have had people say, hey, since you flipped your website over, it, we can't find anything. So when you go to cjob.com, there you're going to see two sort of rows. One starts with the words World Canada Local, and then at the end of that one it says More. That's not the one you want. You don't want the one that's in blue. You want the one that's in white and black. 
where it starts with news, traffic, weather, sports, Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and then it says more. And when you hover your mouse over top of that word, more, you'll see a whole list of stuff, shows, schedules, personalities, contact us, blah, 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 and contests. And that's where you click on to get yourself signed up for the Mackling and McGarry Patio Palooza. Okay, can you give me some Star Wars background information? Kylo Ren. Yes. He's on the dark side. That's the imper- He's an imperialist. Uh, the, explain to me Kylo Ren for those, the uninitiated. And even though that I've seen the latest movie, mm-hmm. I'm still just not exactly sure. He's, <laughs> he's Darth Vader's son? Grandson. Grandson. Yes. He's Luke's son? No, he's uh, Leia's. Oh, Leia and Han Solo. Oh, yeah, okay. So what side is he on? He's on the dark side, I know, but uh, officially the, what side would he be? Well, dark side of the of the, the force, we, we actually don't really know a whole lot about exactly who it is he's reporting to. He is a part of something called the Knights of Ren. So we don't, I know that he looks up to Darth Vader, so I guess you would consider him a Sith. But we don't yet know about this supreme leader, Snoke. I don't know who he is, what he really stands for, why he hates everybody. We don't know if this is the the Sith as we have come to know them over the years or if this is something entirely new. Or maybe he's always been there just waiting in the shadows, sort of lurking, waiting for his opportunity to strike. Will we learn more about this in December? The latest movie? Episode 8? Yes. Yes? Okay. I hope so. Okay. So Adam Driver, he portrays Kylo Ren in that that's Rogue One, right? Oh, that was in uh, The Force Awakens. Force Awakens. So was that two ago already? Well, because episode seven was The Force Awakens, so that was part of the actual episodes in the main yes. saga. Oh, the Rogue we, One was kind of one of these offshoot yeah. stories. It was okay, a, a Star Wars story. Got it. It feels because it felt like it had been a while mm-hmm. since I had seen this movie. Anyway, I digress. Adam Driver, who portrays Kylo Ren, very popular actor, handsome young man. I didn't know that he was a member of the U.S. Marine Corps really? at one point in time. Really? Yes. After September 11th, all his friends were talking about, we got to join the armed forces. He was the only one that did it. Really? He joined the U.S. Marine Corps, but before he was deployed, he was involved in a mountain biking accident, cracked his sternum or similar, was unable to go to either Iraq or to Afghanistan. Oh, my goodness. Now, I tell you this story because Budweiser has released a commercial featuring Adam Driver and a story about something called their Folds of Honor Scholarship. And the story is, it's going viral. So you know what? We like to try and tell you this stuff before you see it or hear about it anywhere else. So we're going to do our best to uh, jump the queue here for you and uh, play some of this. Uh, It's a three-minute, 49-second feature. We won't be able to play all of it here, but here's how part of it goes. Dear Folds of Honor, my name is Haley Grace Williams. I am 21 and studying to be a nurse because I have a calling to help people, a calling inspired by my father. Don't need him. (laughs) My everyday hero, Army veteran John Williams. John, come on back. Right before Desert Storm, my dad severely injured his back during a training exercise. That maintains the integrity of the space. His injury was so severe, today he has two steel rods and six screws fusing his spine together. 
Now I'm driving a bus part-time to work a whole eight hours. Yeah. I'm in too much pain. Worse than the physical toll has been the emotional one. While his unit shipped off to war, my dad watched from a hospital room. To this day, he feels a sense of guilt. He feels as though he wasn't there for his buddies when they needed him. With our family's financial situation, the burden of paying for school is all on my shoulders. Right now, I'm working 40 hours a week to pay the final year, but at a cost of nearly $44,000, affording my final year simply may not be possible. Receiving your scholarship would change my life and set me up to change the lives of veterans like my father. I truly thank, thank you for your consideration. consideration. Sincerely, Haley Grace Williams. Hello? Hey, John? Yeah. Hey, Adam. Nice to meet you. Same here. Wait a minute. Oh my gosh, you're Adam Driver. <laughs> Shock! <laughs> I can't believe you're here. Wait, is he with you? Yeah, yeah, they sent me your letter. I was in the, the military too. Wow! <laughs> you were in the army, army right? Yeah. Right before Desert Storm, is that right? You injured yes. yourself? In Same, I was oh, wow. injured right before. I was supposed to deploy to Iraq with my unit. I felt so uh, guilty that I didn't really get to finish my service. I, the first person that ever said, I understand, truly understood. And then now you're, you're in school now. Yes. And that's when you reached out to Folds of Honor. Then they, they reached out to me and they told me to let you know that you got the scholarship. Oh my goodness. But also, Budweiser and I thought that you shouldn't have to worry about school. So Budweiser is going to be covering your all remaining school expenses for the rest of next year. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. You don't have to worry about it anymore. <laughs> Thank you. Your family's commitment to... I suspect that you are going to be seeing that video, that commercial, that short film, really, uh, on your Facebook timeline either today or tomorrow. It showed up in mine just in the last 20 minutes or so. And it's uh, very heartwarming. I'm usually not a fan of this exploitation of military families. You know, when they do these uh, surprises at baseball games and other events where, you know, they invite the son or daughter to throw out the ceremonial first pitch. And then there, lo and behold, is their father who's come home early from a deployment somewhere. I, I don't like that exploitation. It's good for tears and for emotions and, and uh, that sort of thing. But I just... Don't usually appreciate that. But this part of the story, the fact that Adam Driver himself had the same sort of experience militarily as uh, as uh, Mr. Williams did, John Williams, uh, I think is important. And it ties back to our conversation that we had, uh, ironically, with Adam, Adam Milne from Mood Disorders earlier about this idea of of peer support. And John Williams says right here in the video, you know, you're the first person that I've talked to. Ironically, it's an actor, a famous person delivering incredible news that really understands what he's been through. So I thought it all tied everything together. And with today being the 4th of July, uh, an awesome way to celebrate Independence Day and wish our friends in the United States a happy 4th. 346 on 680 CJOB. We'll have a look at traffic, weather, and then we'll find out what's coming up on the news with Richard Cloutche and Julie Buckingham, all starting after these. You ever done yoga, McGarry? No. There's this saying uh, Jackie does when she's kind of stressed. She'll kind of just sit 
collect her mind and she'll say, Usa. Usa. I'm doing that right now as I read this text message accusing me of being anti American. Why is Greg so anti American? I just wished America a happy birthday. I just said I detested the idea of American soldiers being exploited at baseball games and such, and that painted a, an anti-American picture for one of our listeners. Uh, sorry to be worked up about it, but that really bugs me. I'm personally insulted by that comment. I am not anti-American. I may be anti-Donald Trump, but I am the furthest thing from anti-American. Some of my favorite people, some of the most important people in my life have been American and still are, in fact. And how does that go again? USA. Woosa. Woosa. Oh, I say calm blue Woosa. ocean. Calm blue ocean. I am a hollow reed. <laughs> You're a hollow reed? I am a hollow reed. I am a hollow reed. And she says it quite often during calm the show off air. Calm blue ocean. Calm I'm, blue I'm ocean. I'm sure she does. That's the voice of Julie Buckingham. Richard Cluche is here. And... Brittany Greenslade. Brittany Greenslade from Global Winnipeg. What on earth brings you into our studio <laughs> at 3.51 in the afternoon? I mean, you're welcome anytime, <laughs> Brittany, but what brings you here today? I missed you guys. I just yeah. wanted to come hang out. Yeah, she's, um... Mm, that's not always the truth. We heard there was a... <laughs> a, a, a job a, opening coming well, up. Yeah, yeah, talk show, uh... <laughs> Job opening. Oh, I see. Yeah. See how we learn about these things? <laughs> DJ was, always I, breaks the stories. I, I was thinking during your uh, your pro-America tirade there uh, about the 4th of July hot dog eating contest. Yes. We've got a story coming up uh, on that in the 4th uh, We have the news. call from ESPN because yeah. they don't mess around. Hey, it's serious Aspen? business. It Aspen, is serious. you have Aspen? Yes. Yeah. Do your kids get bored during the summer? Eh, no. no. <laughs> we keep them busy. They're at camps. Uh, they're at a volleyball camp next week, and then they're at a curling camp at the end of the summer, and a couple others in so between. So you're saying they're overscheduled then? <laughs> yeah, they're overscheduled. <laughs> well, that's one of the things we're going to be talking about tonight as well is... Is bored a good word or a bad word? And for some people, it's considered a swear word in their house, saying, do not ever tell me you're bored, because kids should be able to use their imaginations. So we're going to be talking about that at 407 with Global's Lauren McNabb. How many of us had fathers that said, you want bored? I'll show you bored. It should have worked. That's right. You got right. chores out time of the deal. Time for leaning is a time for cleaning. Yep. That sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, I'll be looking forward to that one. So the three of you then are hosting the show today? Is that yeah. what I'm understanding yeah, here? Probably. Probably. That's I'm going we'll on. I'm going on vacation. Oh, you had to tell her. <laughs> Where are you going? Well, I'm going to the UK. Who gave you time off? I don't know. It happens. Well, Everybody right. needs time off for good behavior, and they said <laughs> that you guys are due. Did you get double? <laughs> I meant that you guys them. would have a couple of weeks oh, I, without me. You guys are getting, good at deflecting it. You're really good at that way. Time off for good, good behavior thank for all good. of us. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you're good. welcome. No, um, spread the, spread the we will be apart for close to a month. I would think. Julie needs a break. So Julie's mm-hmm. off, and then I'm off. So there you go. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing the whole uh, yeah. England, France, Belgium, yeah. some of the beaches. Yeah. So it's going to be, be kind of anchor rotation. Brittany's going to come in for a few days here and there. You never know. Fantastic. You never know. Great to have you in the building. And if she's really Anytime, good, like Brittany. I said, one of us might get to retire. There you go. <laughs> I don't one, know about two, that. <laughs> you, me, my, you know. That's right. Catch an anchor by the toe. There you go. <laughs> Richard Cloutier, Julie Buckingham, and Brittany Greenslade. The news from 4 until 7 on 680 CJOB. And that is all the time we've got, Greg. So I'll say thank you to you. Thanks to Jeff Fortier. And thank you to you for listening to Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB.